across Europe in the last uh, week. Uh, VE Day was celebrated, as you know, to mark 75 years since the end of World War II in Europe. And this reminded me of a rather odd message I received on Twitter a few years ago from a guy called Finn Dwyer, a historian and presenter of the hugely popular Irish history podcast. And you really should listen to it if you can. It's a labour of love for Finn. And you can hear um, that how much work he puts into it just by listening to it. Um, and he'd been working on a fascinating story about a time after the war in Ireland when a number of leading Nazis, people who Donald Trump might call bad dudes, were welcomed um, to Ireland and, in a sense, given shelter here. Now, one of them was a particularly nasty character called Otto Skorzeny. And he turned out to be a part of Hitler's inner circle. Um, one of his right-hand men, in a way, who was a paratrooper, kind of a crack paratrooper, and who was entrusted with such tasks as rescuing Mussolini from Allied hands uh, during the war. Um, and one of the things that came up in the message was that, as a complete surprise to me, was that Finn told me how my grandfather, who fought in the Second World War for the Germans, and who was a doctor and who had come to live in Ireland, uh, turns out to play a key role in this story. Uh, needless to say, um, when Finn contacted me, I shuddered, wondering, um, would this be a good role that he played, or a bad role that he played? Anyway, we decided we'd ask Finn on, not only to talk about his podcast, but to tell us this fascinating story, and he joins me now. Hi, Finn. Hi, Mario. Thanks very much for having me on. You're very welcome, and congratulations on the success of your brilliant podcast. How long have you been doing it, and what subjects does it chiefly concern? Uh, I started in 2010, I guess, a uh, bit early on the, in terms of podcasts. But uh, over the last 10 years, I've covered a fair bit of ground. So I would have done things like The Great Famine. True to at the moment, I'm doing a series on Irish experiences in the Spanish Civil War. About a thousand people would have travelled out to fight in that war. So it looks at what they found there, how they got on. It's quite a lot of interesting stories around that. Yeah. And this story that you're going to tell me uh, concerns Ireland in, in post-World War II. So it's about 75 years since World War II ended. And I know that a lot of, you know, a lot of Germans who were involved in the war and a lot of, let's say, bad Germans, uh, Nazi types, would have tried to flee uh, to different parts of the world. And in a sense, Ireland was, was one of them. Isn't that right, Finn? Yeah, for sure. I think it is at the end of the war you have this situation where Obviously, large numbers of people have been killed, but there's considerable numbers of very prominent Nazis who are still alive and they realize now that they are going to face the consequences of what they've done. So you have, obviously, I, I suppose people are well aware that a lot of them fled to South America, but you have numbers of them that do come to Ireland. I suppose Ireland at the time was not involved directly in the war. So for some of them, um, it would have stood out. And uh, I suppose, as we'll see later on in the case of Scarzani, there was, a, I suppose, a willingness to turn a blind eye maybe to what they had done and um, certainly not raise question marks about their past, even though in the case of Scorzani, there was very, very serious rumours and Irish military intelligence even had uh, considerable information on exactly what he was up to during the war and particularly then after the war, even because he, like many of them, wouldn't have given up on his ideas, um, even though he claimed himself he had. There was considerable information or evidence that uh, he continued to be a Nazi. Like he had an extraordinary reputation emerging from the Second World War. He, as as you said there, he had been involved in the very famous rescue of Mussolini, and then the year after that, he kidnapped Nicholas uh, Horty, who was the son of the uh, Hungarian dictator, um, and that was another very daring raid at the time. And 
I suppose what's often forgotten about him, there's a tendency maybe to look at Scorzani as this kind of a commando figure, like something out of a film. What's often forgotten, or maybe are some of the crimes. So the American army, for example, wanted him at the end of the war because at the Battle of the Bulge, he had dressed in US military uniforms and tried to get behind the lines, supposedly in a plot to kill Eisenhower. But what they were really wanted him for is that he was accused of torturing and killing US soldiers. Then later on, um, in the 1960s, the Austrian post-war government accused him of um, being involved in uh, the trial of a gas gun on concentration camp victims. And then he mixed with extremely uh, uh, dubious, dubious is a very mild way of putting it, but for example, he was accused of helping Adolf Eichmann, who was the architect of the Holocaust, escape Europe at the end of the war. And he definitely had been involved with Eichmann in the dying days of the Nazi regime, trying to organise resistance to it. Maybe other things that people would be familiar with, the July plotters where the German army tried to overthrow Hitler. Um, Scorzani was called on to put that down. So there's no question that this guy was some sort of um, soldier just following orders, which I think sometimes around him in particular, there's this idea, well, he was just this soldier and wasn't really involved. He had a, a terrible track record coming out of the Second World War. Yeah. Now, the context, part of the context for this, Finn, is that Ireland were neutral during World War II, but after the death of uh, Adolf Hitler, um, is it true that um, de Valera um, offered his condolences to the German people? Yeah, so uh, after the death of Hitler, which was, I suppose, one of the most controversial things that would have happened at the end of the war is that Eamon de Valera does go and offer these condolences. And I think a lot of people understand to be pretty outraged. Um, I suppose a month later, even more evidence had emerged exactly what had gone on in terms of um, concentration camps and things like that. But there was obviously there was no question about what a horrific regime um, the Nazi government was at this point. Um, and it, it, that, I suppose, in a way, I guess what comes up later on kind of sets this tone that people in Ireland certainly had this. I suppose, questionable uh, attitude to what the Nazis had done, mm. and particularly when Scorzani comes to Ireland. Yes, I think so we, tell us about that. This man, Scorzani, comes to Ireland. Now, he is a kind of a commando paratrooper figure. If you see him online, you will see he has a giant scar down the left side of his cheek. Um, he is, you know, he is almost a stereotypical bad Nazi um, to look yeah, at. for and sure. He, yeah, yeah. yeah, he really fits the role. He really does. Yes. He's like a Bond villain, really. And, and this guy arrives in Ireland, and what happens to him? Yeah, so he'd been living in um, Franco's Spain, which was the last fascist dictatorship in Europe, and he'd been living there, walks into the Irish embassy in the summer of 1957, asks for a visa to Ireland. There's a little bit of toing and froing in Ireland about whether he should be given this, but ultimately gets it. And very quickly, when he arrives in Ireland, this guy who, as, I, as we've outlined, is a very dubious character, is essentially welcomed by the the great and good of Irish society. So on June the 10th, 1957, he's staying at the Port Marnock Country Club and he has very close uh, contacts with the woman who owns that, a woman called Gladys Mooney. And she organises this evening with Scorzani where you get leaders from business, politics, essentially all come to meet this man. Um, no one really understands why it's happened. Um, the evening uh, press at the time report on it and they report that, for example, a man called Richard Duggan, a prominent business leader in Dublin at the time, a figure that maybe we might come back to, Charles J. Hawhey is also present. Paddy right. Burke. What kind of age is there. Charles J. Hawhey at the time now? Oh, he's uh, he would be in his 30s, I guess, at that stage. And is he a like, councillor or a TD at the time? Or? 
He's a TD. He's a he's TD. A TD. So point. Charles Hawley is a TD and he's at the Port Marnock Country Club to take part in an evening with this Scorzani guy. Yeah, and actually the evening press at the time are, even at the time, are questioning why is this being arranged because also there is a guy called Beckhart who is a French banker who had been in the French intelligence and he had flown in from Paris for this event. So there's, you know, we can fly to fancy about, you know, what was going on that night. But certainly Scorzani is getting introduced to very key people in Irish society. Um, and it's a great introduction to for him. Um, he is at this point just getting visas. So he can't, um, he can come for three months a year. And he's in Ireland that year. He's the press at the time very much given very favourable coverage. There's no one really... Now, it, it is worth saying in the wider European context at this stage, there had been a flurry of post-war trials of Nazis, which had stopped in the 1950s. So you could argue maybe this is a wider, but Irish, Ireland doesn't follow the European trend, though, even when Europe again starts to highlight what the Nazis had done. He In 1958, he comes back again and... Um, He's told actually on this occasion he can come back, but he can't come back because through Britain because he's on the Home Office suspects suspects list. No one in Ireland questions should we be having someone into Ireland that's on a British Home Office suspects list, which I guess is kind of a terrorist watch list. Again, he's putting down um, very prominent this woman Gladys Mooney, the businessman Richard Duggan, are his references on his visa, and he comes again. Then the following year, 1959, he buys Martinstown House in County Kildare, and. When he does this, he also applies for um, permanent residency in Ireland. And the press attention at this point is, you know, you'd really wonder what's going on. There's letters praising Scorzani, what a, uh, kind of a warrior he was. There is a couple of people at this point. Um, an American tourist is in Ireland in 1959 and writes going, do you know what you're doing here with this guy? Um, but you, in the National Archives, you can see the back and forth um, between civil servants and the Department of Justice who are dealing with this have no issue at all with him. Some civil servants go, there's questions over this guy being an arms dealer and we want to know more about this. This guy, what's he doing? But no one, again, they just give him a, a, a temporary visa. They don't give him the full uh, residency. It should be said that Oscar Trainer, who was the Minister for Justice at the time, did want to give him this, that, but it goes back and forth. Um, and I think 1960 is probably the pivotal moment because in 1960, Adolf Eichmann, the architect of the Holocaust, is caught in South America and brought to Israel for trial. And this brings the whole issue of what the Nazis had done back into the limelight. There's also new, uh, newspaper reports now about Nazis in Ireland because he's not the only one, a man called um, von Dornberg, who had been a prominent Nazi um, diplomat, also turns up in Ireland and buys property here. British MPs contact um, the Irish Embassy in London saying that they're hearing stuff or rumours from their constituents who have been in West Cork, hearing rumours that Nazis are buying up prominent uh, or buying up property in the area. But no one in the, I suppose, corridors of power does anything about this. For example, in 1960, uh, when Scorzani comes back, he's brought to the Dorky Historical Literary and Debating Society to, and they have an evening with him. This is not to question the man what he got up to during the Holocaust or anything like that. This is like, tell us your war stories. You know, he's he's been absolutely feted by Irish society. And I suppose that brings us he on. He was given the Matt Damon treatment in Dorky. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he very much was. Like it's it, it's it's bizarre to look back at these newspapers that the real the powers that be in Ireland, no one went should we really be associating with them. And it's at this point where um, your grandfather actually 
was one of the few people to try and do something about this. Because wow, wow, that, that's very interesting. So, sorry, my hands, my, my hands were biting, or my my, te- my teeth were biting my my nails there, wondering, Finn, what you were going to tell me. So, uh, <laughs> like, how how did my grandfather become inv- embroiled in this story? Well, as you know, he had moved to Ireland himself after the war. And he'd become a doctor and he'd established, a, I think, a factory as well in, in, in Nimerick. Yeah. And he, I suppose, had been watching this in the in newspapers because there was all this coverage. And he felt he had to do something about it, that he maybe had, um, he had watched, he had in previous years been watching other Germans come to Ireland because he'd written an article in a German magazine about what the people that he said um, were coming here to what he felt were escape certain eventualities. And I suppose what he's getting at there is that these are probably war criminals and they're coming to Ireland to escape prosecution. But he decides that he's going to take on this issue of, um, it's actually in 1961 when he does this, he contacts Robert Briscoe. And Robert Briscoe was a Ireland's probably um, most well-known um, Jew at the time. Mm. And he was a, an, an MP or a, a TD rather, mm. um, and had been, uh, um, had a history that stretched back to the Irish War of Independence. So Would this be the father Robert. of Ben Briscoe or? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah that, that's him. Yeah. Mm. And he contacted Robert Briscoe and highlights who Scorzani is. Um, he actually attached a very favourable, um, or sorry, a, a, yeah, a very favourable article in the Irish Independent um, about Scorzani and it's highlighting going, look, our, the Irish press are talking about this guy as if he's some sort of soldier. Um, this guy is, uh, he, he, he says that he, he raised the really, he's the first person to really raise the pertinent question going, where is he getting his money? Because Scorzani had left, had broken out for a prisoner of war camp in 1948, literally with the clothes on his back and he's turned up in Ireland, he's bought Martinstown House, he's evidently got lots of money um, and your grandfather also highlights going a lot of Jewish property was stolen during the Third Reich. Um, so, and it did, he doesn't, he obviously can't prove it, but I think he's trying to draw this connection. And what, what response did my grandfather get to these entreaties? It's, it's, it's pretty depressing. So Robert Briscoe forwards the on to Oscar Trainer, who's the Minister for Justice, and Oscar Trainer uh, totally shoots it down, uh, warns Robert Briscoe that uh, he says that the Irish government didn't actually like your your grandfather at the time because he had written articles in German magazines about Irish life. And I think in one of them, they felt he had been a bit um, condescending maybe about rural Irish people. Um, I think at the time, Irish, our, our Irish politicians were very, um, I suppose, protective. And any kind of criticism at all was interpreted. Mm. But what's remarkable, like your grandfather has ostensibly done nothing wrong other than just to disagree with them. And they warn... Uh, Robert Briscoe, himself a, a Jew who obviously has watched what's happened during the Holocaust, and they warn him to stay away from your grandfather and not essentially not to associate or listen to the um, questions that he's raising. And obviously the really pertinent one, I suppose, is where is he getting his money? Why are we letting this man in? And they warn Briscoe to stay away from him, um, st- stay away from your grandfather. Um, and they never seem to question these issues um, about Scorzani. And... Um, Briscoe, as far as I can tell, doesn't really push it anymore. Um, and what's really strange is in that same year, while your grandfather was raising this, G2, which are Ireland's uh, military intelligence, also prepared two reports on this guy, Scorzani. And they say that they think he's actually going to use Cork Harbour um, to uh, ship weapons. He's an arms dealer, that he's going to ship weapons to uh, North Africa. And that he's meeting with very shady characters, people like Leon de Grel, 
Ulrich Riddell, Oswald Mosley, Adolf Eichmann's sons. There's rumours that he's even going to potentially try and free Adolf Eichmann from a prison in Israel. Um, so all this is floating around. Your grandfather's raised this issue on a very official, like you can find the letters in, in, in archives, you know, yeah. there's no question, and they ignore it. Um, and then in 1961, at this point as well, Charlie Hawhey, who was at that meeting, he he becomes the Minister for Justice in Ireland at the time. Um, these rumours around Scorsini continue all through the 1960s. The Austrians in 1963 want to put him on trial for testing that the, the gas gun. Noel Brown at this point gets involved and he raises questions about why he has the ability to come and go. And what's really odd is through the 1960s, no one questions why this man. Because I, I think what some people want to know is what does Ireland gain by allowing this man come and go into Irish society? They could at any point, say today, obviously with, say, EU regulations, um, European citizens have the right to travel. That doesn't exist in the 1960s. They could have at any point said, we don't want you here, and they won't do it. Um, and there's no question of his politics in, the, in 1963, for example, Scorzani goes to Spain to attend a, a memorial for the fascist Benito Mussolini. Um, the US newspapers through the 60s also allude to what's going on in Ireland, that these Nazis are living here. Mm. Um, ultimately, what seems to actually do, do, probably bring him to an end, his time in Ireland to an end, is probably in 1971, a, a, a newspaper report comes out that he'd actually met... Uh, the senior IRA figure, Rory O'Brodick, in Spain about the idea of importing weapons right. into Ireland at the time. And he really? doesn't come back to Ireland after that. Yeah. And that may be what... I was wondering when you'd get to that part, Finn. <laughs> I, I was wondering when that would come up. But th one of the things that emerged from your podcast as well, tell me if I'm wrong here, um, but you, you seem to uncover um, uh, evidence that there is a decidedly anti-Semitic strain in the Irish civil service. I think certainly in, in the Department of Justice. And I suppose when I was talking about Oscar Trainer there, Oscar Trainer is a very famous Irish politician, but he was quite old at the time when all this is going on. He's well into his 70s and he was actually partially deaf by this stage. The secretary in the Department of Justice at the time was a man called uh, pa Peter, Peter or Patrick, Barry, sorry, the name eludes me, but he was or explicitly rather anti-Semitic had described uh, Jews as um, um, basically a, a kind of a, a social problem in Irish society, even though at this stage, like not that it matters, but there's hardly any Jews in Ireland. But I think it reaffirms the idea that this man is a hardened anti-Semite. Um, and I think that may be part of the willingness where they don't, where obviously other people would go, this man has been implicated in some of the worst crimes of the 20th century, whereas for these people, I, I think they would maybe, I, 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 this is obviously um, your, I'm, I'm the conjecture, mm -hmm. like, but certainly Barry, judging on his previous statements, uh, had, even after the war, um, was saying pretty reprehensible things yeah. about, um, and if you look at other politicians, for example, Oliver J. Flanagan um, would have said appalling things about um, Jews as well, that it's there is a strain, and I, I think we I wouldn't like to say that it's it's rampant in Irish society yeah. or that Irish society after World War Two was sympathetic to Nazism. That that would be totally in, incorrect. But I think there is a, a strain of anti-Semitism uh, among very powerful people yeah. in Irish society, and how, how much it extends beyond that well, is, is debatable. But 
you have these clear statements. Yeah, Finn, it's a very interesting story and thank you very much for sharing it with me and my listeners. And I remember growing up as a child in Waterford and um, that, you know, people were aware that my grandfather was German and then, you know, when you're a child, people slag you and they bully you and stuff about stuff and they used to, you know, call me Dr. Death in school and all this sort of crack, you know, because like he's German and he fought for the Germans and the Germans were bad. And so at the time, you know, every so often I would come across this kind of, um, you know, this this idea that I was I was a German as well and all this sort of stuff. And I must say by listening to your podcast, it made me um, really so proud of my grandfather that, you know, um, contrary to being, you know, a sympathizer in any way, he was quite the opposite and actually went out of his way as a civilian and a citizen of Ireland um, yeah, sure. to bring attention yeah. to the fact that there were Nazis in our midst. And I must say, he's gone now many years, and but it's given me a very, very um, nice memory and uh, a sense of pride in who he is and, and what he ultimately represented. Um, Finn, the name of your podcast is Irish History Podcast. It's an excellent podcast. Thank you very much for sharing that and this story with us, and Finn Dwyer. Thank you for joining me, Finn. Thanks very much, Mario. Okay, and we'll be back with um, Eno Doherty after this. Mario Sunday Roast on Today FM with Mario Rosenstock. Everyone is doing their best to curb misinformation these days. People want trusted facts from reliable sources as they happen, which is why radio is still such a trusted medium. Here at Today FM, we have dedicated journalists bringing you the latest news on the hour. Trust radio. Choose radio. Choose Today FM. Some of us are anxious. Some of us are learning to video call our grandchildren for the first time. Some of us are clicking refresh endlessly on news sites. Some of us are working on the front line. And some of us are worried about them. And some of us are finding all of this hard. We're all some of us. No matter what you're going through in isolation, let's stay connected and make it through together. Visit gov.ie slash together for advice, ideas and support for your physical and mental well-being, an initiative of the Government of Ireland. At Vodafone, we're making sure our network is the best it's ever been. We're now offering all our bill pay customers unlimited data. So that's unlimited sourdough starter searches. Unlimited, have you seen this? Followed by unlimited diagonal laughing emojis. Unlimited, you're on mute there, Ashling. And unlimited text, songs, quizzes, games, streams, laughs, pics, pods, scrolling, fundraisers, unlimited. You get the idea. Because even though we're apart, there's still unlimited ways to connect together. Customers can sign up on Vodafone.ie. Vodafone, ready? Unlimited calls, texts and data subject to signing up to a red unlimited plan. See Vodafone.ie for full terms. Romeo's have been providing home deliveries to families for the last 25 years and we continue to serve freshly cooked hot food to families in our local communities. Romeo's is the delivery expert. We have industry leading delivery equipment and the best systems to get food to you fast and hot. Order your home delivery online now at Romeo's.ie. Thank you. Today FM. Mario's Sunday Roast. Today FM. Mario Sunday Roast, thanks very much to Finn Dwyer uh, for his very interesting story. And um, I was delighted to hear about my grandfather in that uh, context.
and um, somebody asked, uh, was going to ask Finn, is it true that De Valera sent a letter of condolence about the death of Adolf Hitler? And that was confirmed in, in the affirmative uh, there by Finn. And lots of texts. Mario, we need to listen to public health service uh, advice now. More than ever, there are many families out there bereaved and cannot mourn their losses properly as they can't have funerals. It will be a terrible mistake to start rushing things now and make a complete mess when we have done overall uh, done so well. Um, it's funny out there that there is the perception that we have done well and, and that is challenged by a vocal minority I think I suppose it's uh, safe to say um, I know the economic side of the argument the texture goes on to say is coming to the fore now but money cannot replace lives that can be saved if we do this slowly the virus hasn't gone away yet you know anyway um, it is true I mean one of the things that would be devastating is if we had kind of had to pull back on one of these phases so this is phase one tomorrow and if you got to three weeks and you had to keep you know m- miss out on a phase or go back on a phase um, anyway, thanks to the texters uh, for all those. Um, now, why do we love conspiracy theories so much? We've always loved a good conspiracy theory from Roswell and Area 51 to who the, U- to the US government's role in 9-11. Some of them find are interesting and amusing. Um, earlier on, we played Alex Jones talking about um, chemtrails making fro- frogs gay, um, which had us howling in here, while others uh, deeply believe in them and work hard to disseminate them as widely as possible. But the COVID-19 pandemic appears to have sent conspiracy theorists into overdrive. Um, Ian O'Darty um, from the Irish Independent um, is here to help us figure out why. Hi, Ian, how are you? Hey, how are you? Thanks. I'm really, really, really good. You you kind of like conspiracy theories. You like playing around with them, don't you? I love them. Um, I think they're great fun. I love debunking them. And I love seeing them being debunked. But they're a fascinating psychological thing because really, as far as I'm concerned, they're just, it's a religion for a secular era because it provides the same thing that religion used to provide for people, that it gives them um, it gives them the knowledge that they think that only they have access to. It means that they're that bit, bit, bit more special. And it also, it gives, it gives the believers a degree of certainty that somebody knows what's going on in the world. And, excuse me, even after 9-11, it was fascinating. They really exploded. It was, for a lot of people, this belief that there was a secret evil cabal who were pulling all the strings and who could do what they want. For a lot of people, that was actually more comforting than just the idea that life was, as Homer Simpson said, just a bunch of stuff that happens. And the idea of chaos in the world, which is where we live in, a lot of people actually find that really, really terrifying. And there's something quite comforting about the idea of, you know, well, say for 9-11, it would have been Donald Rumsfeld and Cheney and stuff. People quite like the idea that somebody knows what they're doing because we're all afraid of utter randomness. And conspiracy theories are a way of tying the world into an easily kind of digestible shape. And then, of course, you get the better, uh, you get the even bigger advantage that you're the one with the insider knowledge and everybody else is just ignorant and sheeple. Yeah, I mean, it kind of, uh, when you ask why do you believe in, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? What you say there is interesting because people, it turns out, need to believe in a narrative, need to believe in a meaning. It's almost, as you say, linked to religion. The idea that things just happen. I could turn left when I walk outside this building and I'll get knocked down. I could turn right and I won't get knocked down. But whether I turn left or right is my decision and it's a chaotic world we live in. And as you say, that is very scary for people to believe in. And they would prefer something that suggests everything happens for a reason, Ian. Isn't that right? Exactly. It, it, it's, you know, it, it's like um, the way say, some people also, they, they, like, they like to say that uh, karma will get you in the end. Because, again, that's more comforting than just the idea that a lot of people get through life doing bad things and nothing bad happens to them. And it's also, there's a human desire, I think, in many of us to believe that 
we are not the biggest thing out there, that there is a bigger picture than us, that there is some sort of controlling or divining force that even if we can't understand, it's nice to know that it is there. It's a, it, again, a bit like insecurity, a bit like religion, a lot of it's based on sort of insecurity. Yeah. And it's the, people don't want to face the, um, the awful prospect that they're just a biological organism that came into this world on its own and will go out of this world on its own. And there's really nothing they can do about it. Yeah, and it, exaggera- no- it exaggerates our own importance in the scheme of things, doesn't it? Which is unfair because we are just blips, really, and we turn left, we turn right, and then we just bump into each other and things happen. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, facing into our own inherent insignificance can be quite a terrifying thing for an awful lot of people. So they, they, they will feel the need to look at something else. We see also as well, there's a, I know from talking to, like I've been dealing with conspiracy theories for the last 15, 20 years, <clears throat> and the conspiracy theorists that I've met, um, they all have this real genuine sort of sincerity. They really, most of them believe um, what they're saying. And funny enough, the people that I don't, whose sincerity I don't trust, tend to be the ones who propagate these myths. And a lot of the conspiracy theories, both in America and in Ireland, they're being sold by cynics and bought by gullible fools. And that is so. And again, you can also you can basically get another religious analogy out of that as well. You know, um, like the likes of Alex Jones, for example, an uh, Infowars they were talking about earlier. I mean, twenty years ago, he would have been a televangelist. You know, and mm-hmm. he would have been. One of those guys that, you know, like the Jimmy Swaggarts who then get busted for, you know, getting getting their flock to send them in a hundred million because God says he needs a new jet. You know? Um, yeah. So you have, the, you, have, you have these ringmasters, effectively. And if they don't come through in one way, like say being a televangelist, as Alex Jones would have been a few years ago, they'll come through in another way. And the weird thing is that we have the internet now, so everybody on our phones has basically the world's libraries available to download just to watch at the click of a button. We have no excuse for not becoming the smartest, most erudite and most media literate generation in the history of humanity. And instead, we just spend our time now sending memes and conspiracy theories and basically saying that, you know, um, 5G is going to turn us all impotent and, you know, and Leo Varadkar wants to control our minds with vaccines from COVID. Um, absolutely. We wanted to play you again, the audience again, the, the Alex Jones, pr- principally because it's just so damn um, entertaining. Look it up for yourself. I mean, this is what they're, what do you think tap water is? It's a gay bomb, baby. And I'm not saying people didn't naturally have homosexual feelings. I'm not even getting into it, quite frankly. I mean, give me a break. You think I'm, I'm like, oh, shocked by it, so I'm up here bashing it because I don't like gay people. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Serious crap. I'm sick of being social engineered. It's not funny. <laughs> I love the way he winds himself up into a rage. He makes money out of it, though, doesn't he, Ian? Mario, you might have a point on that one, in fairness. I'm just listening to go, maybe I've been a bit wrong to dismiss him all along. Um, Gay frogs. Like, my my favourite uh, theory about Alex, Alex Jones himself is the subject of a conspiracy theory, which apparently drives him mad, which is great. Um which, I mean, do you remember the old comedian uh, Bill Hicks who died about yep. 20 years ago? Uh, there's a theory that actually Hicks didn't die. He just went off and reinvented himself as Alex Jones. I've seen that and one, and he actually people, looks very, very like Alex Jones in certain pictures. But what I think is brilliant about it is that Alex Jones finds that really insensitive. Now, this is a guy who said the victims of Sandy Hook were all actors. 
Um, but he really doesn't like people saying that he's just Bill Hicks reinventing himself, you know. So any any time anybody has any dealings with an Alex Jones fan or whatever, just keep on mentioning Bill Hicks because it drives them bloody bonkers. Yeah, it also makes me look at Kermit the Frog in a completely different light. But anyway, um, Donald Trump, uh, Ian, is are retweets conspiracy theories. So this puts it into a different platform altogether. So. Whereas Alex Jones from Infowars may have been a kind of a peripheral character, uh, you know, in the in the larger scheme of things, he is now retweeted uh, frequently by the President of the United States. Yes, and how terrifying is that? You know, and I say that as somebody who would have voted for Trump in the last election <laughs> over Clinton. Um, but Trump has always had a very conspiratorial bent, which is... A bit ironic, given the fact that a lot of people assume that he's part of, of the great grand conspiracy himself, that he's a front for the deep state and stuff like that. But you see, when, when you have Trump talking about deep state, which is effectively his own officials, um, it's no wonder then that some of the, I'll be polite, some of the more gullible amongst us um, then tend to swallow this. But the, the important thing about the, the great debate about all the corona conspiracies and the 5G conspiracies and the vaccine conspiracies, and people say we need to ban these off, off social media and stuff like that. I think that abrogates the individual of their own responsibility to actually check things out. If you see, I mean, some of the stuff we've all been seeing on social media over the last six months, even by the standards of conspiracy theories, it's been completely bonkers. You know, and because people want to believe something, and also people resent authority more now than they ever did. There's a, there's a greater lack of trust between the average citizen and the average government all across the West than there's probably ever been before. Yeah. We've become completely apathetic. People well, don't believe their governments. And yeah. so when they don't believe the governments, they don't believe anything else. Yes, but, but yeah, I mean, you rightly say, should we not take more responsibility for checking stuff out ourselves? But isn't this the problem, that people don't want to check it out because they don't, they just want to believe that they just want, it's confirmation bias. They want to confirm already, what they already believe. It's confirmation bias, but it's something that one of the things I always found interesting, like, like most people my age, I loved the X-Files. I always thought it was great, mm. great fun. But the thing that used to really, really annoy me about Mulder was that he had this famous poster in his office saying, I want to believe. And therein lies the exact problem with every conspiracy theory and every conspiracy theorist. Anybody can believe. You shouldn't want to believe. You should want to know. My thing is that like, I mean, from the time I was a kid, I devoured sort of UFO books and, you know, Bermuda Triangle books or whatever. And I just, I wanted to know. And I still do. I mean, you can see the Pentagon releasing some very interesting uh, UFO types. Yes, I did. I sell them, yeah. And these are fascinating. They're, and they're genuine questions to be asked about all of these things. But I don't believe in anything because belief, belief is just a superstition if you don't have any logic based on it. So I want to know the facts. I want to know the facts about how many files, for example, the Pentagon haven't released yet. And I want to know why they've decided to release these things now. Um, and there's a fascinating story about that. You don't have to be wearing a tinfoil helmet to be interested in something like that. But again, it's this thing of I want to believe. And this goes back into my thesis that it's just basically religion for a secular age. It's people want to be of the faith and they want to feel sure and they want to feel in a way that they're saved because they have, you know, they have the, the knowledge and they know the truth, the way and the light. And meanwhile, the rest of us are just scrambling around in the dark and we're all sheep. Um, Ian, you mentioned, well, we, t we, we played the uh, gay bomb and the frogs are gay um, from Alex Jones. And also one that's always driven me mad is uh, Pizzagate. 
Um, I'm sure you know yeah. what Pizzagate. Could you tell our listeners what Pizzagate is? Because I find that to be utterly bizarre. And Pizzagate was the story that did the rounds that Hillary Clinton and a top cabal of Washington insiders were all part of a paedophile club, and they were killing kids. And it was it from this. Uh, it was the Magic Pizza Restaurant? Was that the name? Mm. In Washington, and now it was quite obviously ludicrous. It was like something a, a stand-up comedian could have written as a as a farcical Mickey take-up conspiracy theorist. But so a lot of people actually then began to believe that this restaurant was actually the HQ for the millionaires' murderous paedophile club. And this is where conspiracy theories stop being fun and stop being daft, because one guy believed enough of it to actually go in and start shooting up the restaurant. Yeah. So this is where you get in from the, you know, the likes of yourself, yourself can take a step back and we can look at these things and we can admire the madness and we can, we can admire the effort that goes into painting these deranged pictures. But when you see, basically, in a country with, as we know, very lax gun control and a very inadequate mental health services, um, so you have easy access to guns, bad mental health services, the proliferation of really mad conspiracy theories, and then the result is you get people going in and shooting up restaurants. Mm. Um, but that's at the far end, of course, of uh, of conspiracy theories. Like, for example, just before the show, um, my producer Patrick was talking to me about um, the Bilderberg Group, and that's something you'd hear, for example, Jim Corr uh, possibly go on about. Now, but 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 the Bilderberg Group is an entity, isn't it? Oh, it is. It, mm. it, 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 it exists, and it meets all the time, and they, you know. Every time they meet, the funny thing is now, for, you know, they're the world's worst secret society. <laughs> <Yeah>. Every <laughs> time they meet, there were basically, there were more journalists and more bloggers and more conspiracy theorists turn up to the various different venues. Yeah. Um, the, the people who turn up, I mean, we've got a, a lot of, um, a lot of Irish people have been over to Billboard. It's basically, it's a think tank for the, for the immensely rich. It is. Um, the, the immensely powerful. Um, and it's a bit like, that. there's a similar thing in America called Bohemian Grove where basically the rich and the powerful get together for a weekend and they do rich and powerful things together. Um, but as I said, the, if the Bilderbergs were as dangerous um, and as secretive as their critics like to say, well, then we wouldn't know about them and we wouldn't know where they're having their meeting next year. You know, they go from various luxury resorts around Europe uh, and pick the things. But uh, no, as I said, the... It's, if it's not the Bilderbergs, it's the Illuminati. If it's not the Illuminati, it's the New World Order. But the one thing, Mario, that I would say, all of these conspiracies, they all come back to one thing when you uh, when you shake down hard enough, they all come back to anti-Semitic theories. This all goes back to 1919, the, the, the hoax book, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was meant to be about this Jewish plan to take over the world's banks to take over the world's media and ultimately to take over the world. Now, Russian intelligence wrote that as the, the original sort of false flag. Yeah, that still that is still on that book is still on sale in the Middle East today, and only a few years ago, Egyptian TV did an adaptation of it. And but if you look at a lot of the the Western conspiracy theories, you'll find that it goes back to international financiers, and that's basically a nod and a wink to say the Jews. Um, the latest conspiracy theory about COVID nineteen. And it's getting as much traction in America as it is in the Middle East, is that it's a Zionist plot. So it's amazing if you keep, if you just, if you kind of unravel most of these theories, you will find at the source of it, there's a real deep anti Semitism. And a lot of the, and this is what I'm saying about these theories are sold by cynics and bought by fools. 
Because the people who are selling these theories know exactly what they're doing. But the people who are buying them don't really realize that they're just engaging in another anti-Semitic trope. But it's, it's fascinating, the commonality. And of all the theories that I've gone through over the last few years, from 9-11 all the way down, you'll always find that there's some element blaming Israel or blaming the Jews or blaming the Zionists or the international financiers or whatever way you want to put it. And from, just to finally, Ian, just to, um, as a kind of a, a quick trawl through some of the conspiracy theories, just from your delving into them and talking about them and writing um, frequently about them as well. I mean, for example, the, the, the assassination of JFK. Do you have any particular views on that? Do you think it was a single shooter? Yes. I didn't for a long time because the video, there's a Pruder film, certainly gave a good indication that it wasn't. And this idea that... Oswald couldn't have pulled off three rounds as quickly as he did with the rifle that he had. And then there was a documentary on a couple of years ago, and it was a, just an ordinary American soldier, and he just did, he went up and he did exactly what Oswald did. So that argument that, you know, no one man could possibly have done that, and um, that's bogus. So therefore, you have, and the, the, there's loads of scientific explanations for why it was just the one shooter. I'd love the idea. No, I always thought that it was a cover-up, that there might have been something there. Mm. And a lot of people, we need to, don't mistake conspiracy theories for cover-ups. Exactly, yeah. That's that's why I brought that I mean, one up. Every, every government will try to cover things up. But you see, the thing is, the reason why I don't believe in any of these conspiracy theories, particularly the governmental ones or whatever, is that most governments can't tie their shoelaces without it being leaked. Yeah. Right? The idea that, say, 9-11 would have had to involve about 15,000 different yeah. people if they were going to handle all the explosives and all that. Does anybody in their right mind genuinely with their hand on their heart think that such a conspiracy could have been carried out a in the first place and b that nobody we wouldn't have had any deathbed confessions or we wouldn't have had anybody yeah, absolutely get yeah we see the thing is it's there's no point in saying to the conspiracists we need to look at these things logically because that's a bit like asking a catholic to say can you describe transubstantiation to me in a logical way they can't they just yeah. have to take certain on faith exactly and so into this thing of taking the theories on faith there's there's really almost no point in trying to argue with these people you just have to hope that they'll come and see their senses yeah it's funny actually it, it and it's funny if you, if you even go down on youtube right and look up let's say conspiracy theory of man landing on the moon okay so somebody will look yeah. at that conspiracy theory that man didn't land on the moon and all sorts of evidence will be um posted in uh, support of their theory but what people often fail to do is just go down to the video below it, which is complete and utter scientific refutation of the video they've just watched of why man did land on the moon. Oh, but look, I mean, here's the, I wrote about this on the anniversary uh, a few months ago, and it was like, for anybody who still has any doubts whatsoever, and they don't believe the American science, and they don't believe, you know, the, the official US government line, the one magic bullet against the, the idea that the whole thing is a, is a hoax, a Russian cosmonaut came out in the 70s and said he was in a secret Soviet spying base, keeping an eye on that mission. And the Soviets were looking at it, and he said the cosmonauts actually stood up and applauded because they felt a degree of simpatico with the American astronauts. Now, does anybody honestly think if the Soviets had any proof whatsoever that the landings had been fake, that they wouldn't have come out with it? Yeah. So, uh, you know, you, you really, there's a difference between having an open mind and having an empty head. There is, and indeed. You, really, you need to have a massively empty head if you honestly believe that the Soviets would have colluded with the Americans 
to give the Americans the credit to be the first people to land on the moon. That, Again, that just doesn't make any sense. Absolutely. And we'll leave it there. Ian O'Doherty from the Irish Independent, thank you very much for that really interesting thrall through the world of conspiracy theories. Thank you. Mario Sunday Roast on Today FM with Mario Rosenstock.